Welcome to Homeland, 10 Stories, One Israel. Israel has brought together millions of Jews from across the diaspora in the world's most chaotic family reunion. This podcast is about what that really looks like. Though the series is fictional, each person is based on real stories shared with us by real people. So what better place to start than a Monit Sherut, a shared taxi between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. It's a fairly democratic way to travel, a place where young and old, professionals and students, tourists and locals, religious and secular rub shoulders, often literally, and sometimes against their will. It's a perfect place to learn about the multifaceted character of one of the most interesting countries on earth. Today, you'll meet Alun Shukrun, who, along with 300,000 other Jews, left Morocco for Israel in the 1960s. You'll hear about the difficulties of immigration, the triumphs of being part of a Jewish state, and you'll understand how even members of the same family can inhabit totally different realities. It's a rainy Monday in January, and Elun is in no mood for his commute through the traffic-choked highway between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. For starters, he's forgotten his umbrella and his new boots are not living up to their advertised water-repelling technology. And to add insult to injury, the shared taxi is packed. He's had the misfortune to grab a seat next to some kind of tourist, American from the accent, who is jabbering on her cell phone at top volume. Anyway, so I got in the shower and the water wasn't even hot. So after 10 minutes, I finally got out with shampoo in my hair and my roommates were hysterical because apparently it's common knowledge that hot water only works in this country if you like turn on the water heater an hour before you get in the shower. Like, what is this? The 18th century? Elun sighs, just loud enough to catch the attention of the blonde woman across the aisle. She shoots him a knowing smile and shakes her head, as if to say, <laughs> Americans. Oh my god, mom, I gotta go. The American turns to Elun, panicked. Do you speak English? Yes, mostly. Can you tell me what's happening? The driver has gotten up to make an announcement. What's he saying? Elun listens carefully, then swears under his breath. What? What? We have lost a tire. He does not have a new tire. We need to wait for a truck that will drag us. Tow us. A tow truck. Got it. Okay. How long till it gets here? He says he doesn't know. There is very bad traffic to get here because it is the time that there are many cars in the street. Rush hour. That's the blonde woman sitting across from him. The one who had rolled her eyes. Yes, it is rush hour, and there is too much traffic for the tow truck to come to us quickly. The American considers this. She sighs, then extends her hand. Elune, bewildered, shakes it. I'm Emily. I'm alone. Emily reaches into her bag and prefers a box of ragalach. Because everything is terrible, Elune says to hell with his diet and takes one. Thank you. They're so good, right? the best in the city. Everyone told me to go to this bakery and I was like, guys, it can't be that good, but it totally is. Anyway, so are you French? Emily has given Elune her full attention. Unnerved, he finds himself wishing she'd go back to her cell phone. No, uh, I am Israeli. Before that, Moroccan. That was going to be my second guess. I was in Morocco last year. It was awesome. Do you ever get to go back? No. I have not gone back since we left. When was that? 
Across from him, the blonde woman mutters, Choferet, meaning, wow, she's really trying to get into your business, huh? But Emily, despite her limited Hebrew vocabulary, seems to know this word. Yeah, I get called that a lot, mostly by my roommates. But I want to be a journalist when I grow up, so it's basically in my job description to be a Hoferet. Her Hebrew accent is painful to listen to. Anyway, is it okay if I ask you a few questions? You don't have to talk to me if you don't want to, obviously. I'm just really interested in immigration. And Israel. And, I guess, Morocco. (sighs) I have lived in this country since I was ten. So were you, like, a refugee? The blonde woman is laughing now. (laughs) You're going to have to give her a history lesson. Elun considers his wet feet, his long day, his near-dead cell phone. How else was he going to pass the time? So, he turns back to Emily. You are asking me how I came to this country? Well, yeah. If you want to tell me, I'd love to know. First of all, you should know I was not a refugee. It was 1963. I was ten years old, and we came by boat from Marseille. The first thing Elun noticed was the smell. He hadn't been so naive to assume that Eretz Yisrael would smell like actual milk and honey, but stepping off the boat at the Haifa Pier, he hadn't expected the Holy Land to smell so much like... sweat. Especially after the luxury of the Theodor Herzl, the gleaming cruise ship that had ferried him and his family from Marseille to Haifa in such style. The heat was oppressive, and he and his siblings were itchy and uncomfortable in their nicest clothes. I don't understand why my mom made us dress up. His seven-year-old sister Jacqueline squirmed next to him in her lacy dress, its collar already growing dark with sweat. She wanted us to make a good impression. Elen responded, automatically defending his mother. No chance of that once they see you, Elun. Of course, his 12-year-old brother Claude had some jibe. Elun ignored him like he always did, greedily taking in everything around him. Especially the Israelis. Men and women alike rushed around, looking harried as they took down names, inspected documents, and struggled to communicate with other families making their way off the boat. Elun had never heard so much broken French in his life. But he was most surprised by how the Israelis were dressed. Loose, floppy shorts, beat-up sandals. Compared to the immigrants stepping off the boat, they looked, well, the diplomatic word might be informal. Elaine wasn't allowed to say the less diplomatic words out loud. And he hadn't expected them to sound quite so... harsh. None of his teachers at the Neve Shalom school in Casablanca had spoken Hebrew with this much intensity. Like they were barking, compensating for lack of mutual comprehension with volume. Mishpachat Shekrun? That's us. Elun's family stepped forward. Papa handed over their documents to an agent whose luxurious mustache stood in stark contrast to his completely bald head. Ani, Monsieur Shalom Shekrun? Agent Mustache seemed surprised by his father's Hebrew, responding in a torrent that Elun could only partially understand. After a rapid conversation with the agent, Papa gathered the family in a loose circle to translate. The Jewish agency man said there isn't a car big enough for all of us. He's going to take us to our new home in two cars. Jacqueline, Elun, and Claude will go with the twins. He pointed to Elun's two oldest sisters. Everyone else will go with me and Maman. The ride will take about two hours. Wait, hold on. 
How many siblings did you have? I have six brothers and sisters. Joel, Edith, Marco, Joseph, Claude, and Jacqueline. I am between Claude and Jacqueline. Almost the baby, but not quite. Whoa. Yes, this was very common back then. Especially among Moroccan families. We were not even considered a very large family. My aunt and uncle had twelve, another aunt had nine. Whoa. Okay. No wonder you had to take two cars. Okay, sorry I interrupted. Please, continue. Papa fixed Claude and alone with one of his trademark piercing looks. Listen to your sisters, and don't embarrass me. They drove south in silence. Elon kept his eyes glued on the rocky landscape, eager for his first glimpse of Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. For the past two years, ever since Maman's brother, Tonton David, first dragged Maman and Papa to his Sionist meetings, Elon had been hearing about Jerusalem. Back in Casablanca, the Jewish agency representatives had talked about the new, modern Jerusalem being built atop the old one. Kings replaced by a democratic Jewish government. Ancient paths being repaved to accommodate Jewish bus lines. No prophets preaching doom on the street corners, but daily newspapers circulating, the language of the Bible updated for the modern day. And those Jewish warriors from biblical times? Well, they had tanks now. And they needed help defending their home. Papa, Maman, and Tonton would talk late into the night after these meetings. At first, they tried to keep their conversations quiet. But soon, the whole family, even four-year-old Jacqueline, had an opinion about whether to go to Eretz Israel. Papa was the most excited about the prospect. Imagine a place where everyone is Jewish, he would say, his eyes alight. Where there was no worry about the government. When Papa would say the government, he would gesture vaguely with one hand, as though to indicate that the entire world outside the living room was somehow complicit in the actions of the government. Elon didn't exactly know what was wrong with the government of Morocco, but he did know that his parents were much more cautious now that the French were gone. That they insisted that the children walk everywhere in groups. That his older sister Joelle had once been pushed in the street by unfriendly neighbors and made her way home with scraped palms and a downcast gaze. Perhaps it was this incident that made Tonton David so obsessed with the Israeli army. His face would grow increasingly red and excited as he described the miraculous victory of the Israeli army against six invading nations. Though Elun was pretty sure that at least part of Tonton's enthusiasm was due to the homemade and highly alcoholic maya that he liked to drink in the evenings. The Israelis fought like the Maccabees, he would say, play fighting with Elun's brothers, squeezing their upper arms. You think you can defend yourself against the Egyptians and Jordanians with muscles this puny? Maman would glare at her younger brother. You want to see your nephews holding guns, or worse, your nieces? I want to see my nephews and nieces growing up proud to be Jews. And it seemed that, the army notwithstanding, Maman wanted the same thing for her children. It was decided that in the summer of 1963, right before Elun's 10th birthday, that the Shukruns would sell their beloved house, with its stone floors and shaded courtyard, and fly to Marseille. From there, they would board a boat bound for the port of Haifa. And from there, someone from the Jewish agency would take them home to Jerusalem. But Maman, 
Elaine said as they packed up the room he shared with Claude and Jacqueline. I thought you didn't want to go. I thought you were nervous about the army. His mother adjusted the scarf that always covered her chestnut brown hair and gestured for Elon to sit down next to her. Elon, imagine someone separated you from your brothers and sisters and you didn't see them for many years. Who would separate us? <laughs> no one, mon amour. No one is ever going to separate you. I'm just giving you an imaginary example. In this imaginary example, you are separated. You stay here in Morocco, Edith goes to Egypt, poor Joel gets stuck in Algeria, Marco freezes in Poland, Joseph goes to France, Claude goes to America to listen to Frank Sinatra and get rich, Jacqueline goes to... to... Australia, with the kangaroos. Okay, Elune responded, not sure where she was going. Maman continued. After you and your siblings are separated, you don't see them for a long, long time. You don't even think about them very much after a while. You're so busy with your life here. But one day, someone comes to you and tells you, Elune, come quickly. We found your brothers and sisters. We've brought them all to one place. They've left Egypt and Algeria and Poland and all those other places, and they're all together, waiting for you. What would you say then, Elune? Would you want to stay where you are, by yourself, when all of your brothers and sisters are together? No, Elune said without flinching. I'd want to go see them. Exactly, his mother said, kissing the top of his head. This is what they explained to us in the Sionist meetings. The Jews are coming back from all over the world. This is what we pray for every day, no? Tika b'shofar gadol l'cherutenu, v'sadnes l'kabetz galuyotenu v'kabtsenu, yachad mehera me'arba kanfot ha'aretz l'artsenu. Sound a great shofar for our freedom. Raise a flag to gather our exiles and assemble us together quickly from the four corners of the earth to our land. So, my love, how can we not go? Do you understand? Yes, said Elun. I understand. Wait, so your parents just, like, up and moved? Because your Uncle David, like, convinced them? And because they were religious? More or less, yes. My Uncle David was a Sionist. The Jewish agency came to Morocco to convince Moroccan Jews to come to Israel. For some years, there were some restrictions on immigration, so there was some smuggling of Jews out of Morocco and into Israel. But we came the year that the Moroccan government began allowing Jews to leave Israel again, so we were able to travel safely. But my parents were religious, open-minded toward secular education, but Shomrei Mitzvot. So when the Sionists came, my parents were excited about the opportunity to live in Eretz Israel. Many of my aunts and uncles were already here. Is that why you moved to Jerusalem? Because your parents were religious? We did not have a choice. We lived where they placed us, but we were very lucky. Most Moroccan families were settled in the south, which was not very developed. My cousins who came just a year earlier were placed in Ashdod. So you've been living here your whole life, like since you were 10? Or more or less. Do you live in the same apartment where you grew up? Elun had to stop himself from laughing at this question. No way. Let me tell you about the old apartment. The apartment in Jerusalem was noisy. Children ran wild in the street outside, chasing each other and teasing the neighborhood cats. 
Alun could make out a good amount of the Hebrew and the occasional glimmers of Arabic from other newly arrived Moroccans and Syrians and Egyptians. Not that Elun had a lot of time to listen to their chatter. There was too much to do around the apartment. Like, for example, arranging and rearranging the sparse furniture in the vain hope of finding some extra room. Two rooms, Mamam fumed, attacking one of the thin mattresses, as though hoping that a good beating would cause it to fluff up and turn comfortable. Nine people in two rooms, and no electricity, no hot water, this has to be some kind of mistake. Of course it's a mistake, Papa tried to reassure her. I will go to the Jewish agency offices and explain. There must have been a mix-up. This apartment must have been meant for one of the Ashkenazi families with only two children. I'm certain they will find us a bigger apartment soon. So, every day, Papa would dress in his suit and hat and go to the Jewish agency office in the broiling heat. Elun imagined him explaining in his slow and careful Hebrew that there were seven children in the house, that they read by the light of kerosene lamps, that nowhere in the Sionist meetings had anyone mentioned that the Holy Land lacked hot running water. One day, when Papa was down at the Jewish agency office again, there was a knock at the door. Finally, Maman said. That must be the Jewish agency people coming to tell us where we're going next. She opened the door to a stout woman holding a basket. Yes? Madame Chacroon? By some miracle, this woman seemed to speak French. Heavily accented French, but still, French. I am Madame Chacroon. Oh, good. May I come in? She didn't wait for Maman's answer, barging inside and setting her basket on the table. I am Sonia Goldman, from the Jewish Agency. I came by to see how you're settling in, and to bring you a few things to help you out. Help me, Maman repeated. What would help me is a different apartment, one with enough space for nine people. Sonia kept her smile pasted on. That's not my department, unfortunately. But I have something else for you. She pulled a chicken from her basket, unquestionably dead but still bearing its feathers. This is a chicken from the Jewish agency, for your Shabbat table. Three tins of something unidentifiable followed, and plum jam for your sandwiches. Finally, a loaf of bread. It was black, unlike any bread Elun had ever seen. Maman frowned. We don't need food, we need a bigger apartment, and for someone to fix the electricity, and to arrange for hot water so my children can take a bath without freezing. Sonia gestured at the chicken, her smile looking more and more like a grimace. I can't help with that, but I can help you make chicken soup for Shabbat. Elaine felt rather than saw Maman's glare. The air seemed to thicken and shiver under her gaze. Sonia Goldman from the Jewish Agency, I strongly suggest you leave now and take your chicken with you. Maman put the chicken back in the basket and handed it to Sonia, whose mouth had fallen slightly open. There, she said, ushering Sonia to the door. You can give your charity to someone else. Come back when you have something useful for me. She left behind her jam, Jacqueline said, opening a tin. She stuck a spoon in. Oh, yuck, this is disgusting. Maman snorted. Jam from a tin. No one here knows how to cook properly. Now come. Help me prepare for Shabbat. Wait, so your mom just, like, kicked her out? My mother was very proud. She did not like being treated like a 
poor person. And I remember the woman from the Jewish agency thought we must be poor because we were Moroccans. We were immigrants, and we lived in a special apartment built for immigrants. Shikonim, they were called. The blonde woman from across the aisle, who was not even pretending that she wasn't eavesdropping, interjected. The English translation is housing project. I'm Galina, by the way. Emily. I'd shake your hand, but I don't want to reach over Alain, our storyteller. Yes, a housing project, made very cheaply. The apartment was very small and very ugly. We had iron beds with very thin mattresses, and it took many months before things were shipped to Morocco. So the Jewish agency woman just assumed we were poor and pathetic, but in fact we were very spoiled children. We had never even seen black bread before. In Morocco, we ate only light white bread, you know, a baguette. In those days, dark bread was for poor people. Not like now, when my health-obsessed children scold me when I even look at white bread. So, how long did you live without electricity? Six months we did not have electricity. Six months?! It was a new country, and immigrants were coming from everywhere. They were not ready to absorb all of us. It was a mess. We didn't have a hot water switch to turn on. There was no hot water for months. We took cold, quick baths. (laughs) He is making fun of you, Emily. Oh, I got that, but I'm choosing to rise above it. Anyway, Alain, what did your family actually do? Like, once you got settled in? Did the Jewish agency help your parents find a job? Of course not. Everything we needed, we got for ourselves. Except for the chicken. That was provided by the state. And sent right back to it. Everything changed when Papa's car finally came. It had been a long time since any of the chagruns had seen the old Peugeot 403 station wagon. Papa, can we take it to the beach like we used to back home? Jacqueline asked. Soon, Sherry. But now I don't have time. I need to use the car for my work. Papa's job seemed terrible to Elun. He would wake up in the dark to collect all the working men in the surrounding neighborhoods. One by one, he would deposit them in front of the factories and bakeries and construction sites where they worked. And when their shifts ended, he would collect them again and bring them back home. So he was basically Uber before there was Uber. Something like this, though we do not have Uber in Israel. I know, it sucks. So was he able to make a living like that? It was enough. My older siblings worked. My mother worked sometimes. She taught French to Ashkenazi children, people who wanted to seem cultured. People from your neighborhood? Our neighborhood was all immigrants. No one could afford to pay for French lessons, and half of them already knew French anyway. She would go to the rich neighborhoods and scare all the little rich kids into remembering their grammar. She was very strict with them, but they learned French. One of her students was in my class at the yeshiva. Emily takes him in again, as though noticing for the first time the kippah on his head. You went to a yeshiva? I went to the best yeshiva high school in Jerusalem, Yeshivat Chorev. But it was not a yeshiva like maybe you are thinking. It wasn't ultra-Orthodox where we studied only Torah. We learned there also secular subjects, math, English, science. But my mother was convinced that it was the only place for me and my brothers. She would not take no for an answer. Even though at first I didn't want to go. But Mama, they're all Ashkenazi there. Elon complained when Maman told him that he would be going to Chorev for high school. After almost four years in Israel, the customs of his European peers were familiar, if often confusing. 
they prayed at different synagogues. And some Ashkenazim, like his friend Yoram, almost never went to synagogue at all. They sang the same songs as Elon's family, but they used unfamiliar, mournful tunes. And most of their food was not to Elaine's taste, which was how his mother taught him to say, Gross! I hate that! Though he had to admit the chocolate rugelach were at least as good as the shabakia Maman made for special occasions. Some of the Ashkenazim, especially the older ones, were depressing. His neighbor Elsa burst into screams every time she saw soldiers, which was fairly inconvenient since young soldiers seemed to be everywhere with their rifles and their shiny boots. Two of his older brothers were soldiers now, and it seemed that every time they came home, they set off another round of screaming. Oh, that poor woman, Maman would say. She thinks she's still in the camps. Jacqueline, go talk to her. Remind her where she is. But Jacqueline came back in a matter of minutes, looking defeated. She won't stop screaming, and most of it is in Polish. If you're going to send someone to reason with her, it should at least be someone who understands what she's saying. Poor Elsa. And now, Elun was going to be enrolled in an Ashkenazi school. Yes, and so what if they're Ashkenazim? It's the best religious school in Jerusalem. Does my son deserve something less than the best? Amal fixed him with that look and continued. There is no problem. You'll show them how much you know, and you will be the top student in your grade. And that will be that. So you went to the Ashkenazi school? I went to the Ashkenazi school. Was it weird, being the only Moroccan? Well, there was an Egyptian and a Libyan there, but everyone else was Ashkenazi. My sister used to ask if any of the Ashkenazi kids were rude to us. In those days, there was more tension between Ashkenazim and Mizrahim, people who came from the Arab countries, not like today when everyone is married to everyone. Galina interjected. My husband is Algerian, and I am Russian. My wife is very Israeli. Her family lived in Jerusalem for ten generations. That's insane. It is true. If you stay in Israel, Emily, you could marry someone with this family background, or any family background. You could marry anyone. An Iraqi. A Romanian. A half-Tunisian, half-Polish. A Russian like Galina. A Moroccan like Olon. You guys sound like my grandma, always trying to marry me off to a nice Jewish boy. Mm, there are many very handsome Jewish boys here. Alain, can you confirm, were there many handsome Jewish boys in your school, even though they were all Ashkenazi? I don't know if they were handsome, but they were good friends. My oldest sister, Joelle, didn't believe that I had Ashkenazi friends. She thought that they all must talk about me behind my back. Life was very hard for her. She came to Israel when she was almost 20 years old. She had a lot of trouble fitting in. Eventually, she left. After less than four years. She left? Oh, yes. She had a terrible fight with my parents about it. When Joelle announced her intention to leave Israel in early 1967, Mama and Papa were furious. You want to leave Israel for France? To go from Eretz Israel to Europe of all places? Papa sighed. Joelle snapped back. At least in Europe, they don't feed you propaganda about how all Jews are brothers and sisters and then turn around and spit in your face. No. In Europe, they just cart you off in a train and slaughter you wholesale, Maman raged. Joelle crossed her arms. I'm not staying here. You might have been suckered by all this talk of Achtut B'nai Israel, Jewish unity, but I'm the one who actually sees how little of it there is. 
This inferiority complex of yours is entirely in your mind, Joelle, Papa said. Yeah, sure it is. She ticked off her grievances. The unemployment rate, which was higher for Mizrahi than for Ashkenazi Jews. The police brutality against Jews from Arab countries, which had left a man paralyzed in 1959, sparking riots across Israel. But that was before we came, Maman protested. So what? Joel countered. She raged. About the conditions in the Jerusalem slums. About the underfunded schools. About the deprivation and the hunger. And finally, she reminded them of her broken heart. Of the man who had promised to marry her, but changed his mind when his mother found out her prospective daughter-in-law was Moroccan. Joel, Papa asked. Are you really going to let one nasty, weak-minded person drive you away from your home? Home is where you feel welcome. This isn't my home. Nothing they said would change her mind. Not dangling her two baby nieces in front of her, reminding her of everything she would miss. Not offering to find her a new apartment where she could live with a friend, away from her parents' home for the first time in her life. Not her twin sister, who begged and cried and eventually promised to come visit Paris. Did Joelle ever come back? No. She still lives in Paris with her children and grandchildren. I thought for sure she would come back after the war. Which war? The Six-Day War, 1967. It was a big miracle. Everyone thought they were going to die, and instead we had a big victory. (laughs) Galina, this was years before you were even born. Believe me, we learned all about it. Everything changed after that war. We felt so much confidence in ourselves, in our country. But your sister still didn't come back. No, she didn't come back. There were many like her. People who felt that the Zionists had told them a lie. That returning to Israel would be like a good dream. But they woke up and they were not in a dream at all, so... They left. But you stayed. My life was in Israel. My friends, my school, almost my whole family. Soon I was practicing to go into the army. I I couldn't imagine being anywhere else. What was the army like for you? The army made me into a person. In the summer of 1971, Elun threw himself into preparing for boot camp, running endless laps through the Jerusalem hills, doing pull-ups on doors until Maman threatened to whack him with a broom for destroying her house. And still, the army sapped everything from Elon, then sapped a little more. He hadn't prepared for long excursions in the heat and full uniform, weighed down with a heavy pack. He hadn't prepared for nighttime excursions in the Sinai Desert, where he and his unit had to navigate back to base using only the light of the stars. The army is good for you, bro, Claude told him during his rare visits home. You look less scrawny. Claude was months away from the end of his service, but he acted like he was already out, living the lavish life of a free man. What a pity the army did nothing for you. Still scrawny as ever. Elun would grab his brother then, wrestling him to the ground, just like Tonton David used to do back in Casablanca. Lord, save me from you both, Jacqueline would mutter, rolling her eyes. It was on one such visit home that Elun announced his intention to become an officer. A desire encoded in him, probably by his parents' endless reminders that he needed to be the best. Two of his older brothers had been officers, and maybe in a deep, secret part of himself, Elune wanted to prove Joel wrong. 
Home is where you feel welcome, she had said. No one was more welcome in the army than an officer. Maybe even a career officer, with a position of authority. In a sea of Goldbergs, Zilberschmitz, Rosenblums, it would be pretty nice to be Officer Shukrun. Encouraging. Proof that the army, at least, was a meritocracy. So you served in 73? Yes. The Yom Kippur War? Yes. What was that like? Galina and Elun exchanged a glance. Unlike 67, which was triumphant and exciting, no one talked much about 1973. So Elun just said, You know, only a person who has not seen a war can ask that question. Yeah, that's fair. I'm sorry. Officer, private, Moroccan, Polish. In the haze of war, these distinctions ceased to matter. A tank didn't care how fast you could run, how well you could shoot, how hard you worked. And there were so many enemy tanks. Even now, so many years later, Elun refused to think too much about that October. The worst month of his life, full of horrors that still flickered behind his eyes. He had never told anyone what he had seen there. Not his wife, not his children. He would not tell this young American with her enthusiastic questions and her wide smile and her firm conviction that nothing could be worse than a cold shower in a Jerusalem winter. I didn't mean to pry. I mean, I did because I'm asking you lots of intense personal questions, but like, I didn't mean to bring up something painful. Unfortunately, there's a lot in Israel that is painful. It's a part of the story. For what it's worth, I think it's an amazing story. It's one of many. So many people emigrated here, like Galina, and I'm sure many other people on this taxi, including you. Oh, I'm just here temporarily. I don't think I count. Mm, you might be surprised. My cousin is married to an American who is just here for a semester. Is that why your English is so good? My English is good because I watch a lot of TV. Really? Yes, really. A little embarrassing. I am sure Alon's English is good because he reads serious books, not because he loves Game of Thrones. I don't know what this is. You really don't know Game of Thrones? I've never heard of this. Galina and Emily exchange a glance, like, check out the clueless old guy. Elun pretends not to notice. My English is good because both my brothers-in-law speak very bad Hebrew, and I spent five years in England for my wife's job before I ran away from that terrible place. Rain, like right now, but all the time, I was going crazy. Where did you meet your wife? She was a friend of my sister, Jacqueline. They served in the army together. She came to visit us at home for a Shabbat. Jacqueline tells me that I stole her. When'd you get married? In 1980. I was 27. She was 24. Five years before I was born. 20 years before I was born. Well, that is depressing. Eh, by the time I'm your age, the planet will probably be underwater, so I think you maybe got the better end of that deal. That is even more depressing. Sorry. We can go back to Elaine's love story now. So... What happened after you got married? What happens? I studied law. We had three boys. I have a granddaughter named Amit. I bought a pair of boots that are not waterproof and got in a taxi with my feet soaking wet and sat down next to an American choferet. And here I am. That seems anticlimactic. It's not a movie. It's just a normal life. Very boring. I don't think it's boring. 
You were born in a country with, like, a literal sultan. And now you're here. And you were born in a country that exists because some angry men drowned a bunch of tea in their harbor. And now you're here. Exactly. Exactly. Like, it's crazy if you think about it. Like, we're all here because before we were born, a bunch of people we don't know worked their butts off to make sure that our countries could, like, exist. And now, 70 years later, an American, a Russian, and a Moroccan get stuck in a shared taxi together in a completely ridiculous country where you need to heat up water so it comes out of your taps at a normal temperature. Yes, this really is very stupid. Even in Russia, we had hot water. Alone, now is the time you tell us that you didn't have hot water for six months, and you can't believe that children of our generation are so spoiled. Emily's right. I know. The hot water thing is completely unacceptable. No, no, not that. That is stuyot. Silly. Emily is right that it is quite unbelievable that we are all here together. And yet, we just accept the fact that we live here. We even complain about it. The Sionists who convinced us to move here failed to mention that the greatest unifier of the Jewish people would be complaining about our country. We waited 2,000 years for this. All of this. Even this rain and the stupid broken-down taxi. And now we're home. That was really beautiful. Thank you so much for telling me your story. Yes, it's fine. No problem. You know what we have to talk about next, right? Other than teaching you about Game of Thrones. We can skip this. What do we talk about next? Obviously Galena's story. Oh, no, this is not interesting. I was born in Russia. It was terrible. We came here when I was eight with the rest of the former Soviet Union, and we all had to get used to each other. The end. Oh, I think that's just the beginning. Thank you for listening to episode one of Homeland, 10 Stories, 1 Israel. Homeland is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked and write to us at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. This episode was written by Adi Elbaz and produced by Rifki Stern. Our team for this episode includes Adi Elbaz as Emily, Hussein Mohammed as Elun, and Rebecca Davis as Galina. I'm your narrator, Ellie Sheff. Thanks to our audio engineer, Rob Pera, for his audio magic on this podcast series. Special thanks to research help provided by the two anonymous sources who asked not to be named. You know who you are. We literally couldn't have made this without you. This show is made possible by support from the Coombe Family Foundation, the Crane Mailing Foundation, the Adam and Gila Milstein Family Foundation, and the Skolnick Family Charitable Trust. Stay tuned for episode two, which tells Galena's story of one family's experience emigrating from Russia. <laughs>